glad to have I'm glad to have all of you all today. If you have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus, the book of Exodus. That's going to be the second book in the Bible. Start from your left, you go right. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then down the center column of seats, there's a couple of Bibles underneath that, that seat, a couple stacked on top of each other. You're welcome to grab that and use it as we work through the scriptures today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, looking at verses 1 through 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to share an experience with you. Um, you know, one of the first lessons we learn as kids that our parents teach us is that most times in life you're supposed to share, right? I mean, y'all remember those lessons? Uh, you're supposed to share your toys uh, in, in school. And if you have a lot of siblings, you learn that you're supposed to share your space. Uh, and, and definitely, if you have a lot of brothers and sisters, you learn that you even have to share your food. Um, the older I get, though, the more I'm realizing there are just some things that were not meant to be shared. Um, the, the, the Army taught me that I should not share confidential or classified information. If you're paying attention to our election, you know that's true. Why? Because you will get in trouble, or at least you should get in trouble. I'm not saying anything by that. In school, you, I have learned that you should not share your answers to a test. Some of y'all, guilty. Because you might get in trouble. Um, Halloween, uh, regardless of what you think about Halloween, there are some good things that come out of Halloween. All that little bite-sized candy that come out of Halloween. But it's so little. I mean, those Snickers bars, which I love, they're so little they're not big enough to share with anybody. You should not be, you should not be forced to share those bite-sized pieces, pieces of candy with anybody from that Halloween stuff. Um, and if you're married here, uh, on a more serious note, you definitely should not uh, share your marriage bed. The, the, the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife were not meant to be shared. I, I could keep on going and talk about many other things that probably in life uh, they were meant to be exclusive to a particular relationship, uh, but I'll just stop it at that. And I, I think that segues nicely into um, we shouldn't be surprised to see that there are actually some things in uh, with God and and who He is that God refuses to share because of His deity. God refuses to share one thing in particular, and His glory. God, God refuses to share his glory with anyone, particularly a false god. And that really is the, the gist of our text today. Uh, if you have your hand on Exodus 20, verse 1 through 3, we're going to read these uh, verses really quickly, and then we're going to dive in and uh, unpack them a little bit as we get into the first commandment. Uh, read aloud with me. They'll be on the screen here. Uh, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to gather as your church. Thank you for all who are assembled. We especially thank you for uh, those who are with us as we honor our families who are dedicating their babies today and pray that uh, together, Lord, that we would honor you. Uh, we would honor your word. We sit under your word, Lord, and and uh, anticipate hearing from you. Uh, I pray specifically that you would open our eyes on this passage of Scripture and not just let it be a rule to us, but Lord, uh, bring us, uh, give us both light and light from it. Lord, help us to see what you intended when you gave it to the Israelites. Uh, we pray that we would see your gospel, uh, that that would uh, lead us into freedom and that you would change us under the hearing and the, and the, the reading of your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. All right, so before we dive into the first commandment in particular, we got to address the first two verses that come before verse three. Uh, and um, those two verses are known as the prologue or the preamble. If you're familiar with our Constitution uh, and, the, and the preamble that, that prefaces it, uh, this is very much the same thing. The first two verses of Exodus 20, which uh, it, uh, expands the, the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments of God, are a preamble. And God is doing something very specific in it. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what these two verses tell us is that Exodus, Exodus 20 in particular, 
begins not with God just spouting off a whole bunch of laws to us. Really, he's, he's giving us gospel before he gets to the law. Verse 1 teaches that the, the very person that the law comes from is God himself. Look at it. It says, and God spoke all these words. God wants us to know that I, the, the creator, that the word God there is, is the, the same word that we read in Genesis 1 uh, of God, the, the one who spoke and things began to exist. The God who rules the earth, the, that magnificent one who, uh, who reigns in eternity, who has no beginning and no end. That God, that same God is speaking to Israel. And then in verse 2, um, he says some other things. Basically, uh, two, there's two really important things that he says in verse 2. He says, who brought you out of Egypt, and then he says, out of the land of slavery. And so God here, the God that created Israel and was establishing a relationship with them, he's reminding them that there's good news in what I'm about to tell you. In fact, he gives them good news before he gives them, uh, before he gives them any law at all. And if you think about the, the, the history of Israel, they had been in slavery for 400 years, subjected to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Uh, God uh, raises up a deliverer, Moses. He sends 10 plagues to uh, force Pharaoh to ultimately free them. God saves them by the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts, uh, killing the firstborn son of those who were without that, that covering. Uh, he holds back the Red Sea, allowing the Egyptians to escape across the sea, killing the uh, the Egyptian army that was chasing them. He provides bread in the wilderness, and then he brings them to this point where after delivering them, he makes sure he knows who they are, and he, he ensures that they know the God that's liberated them is the same God that created the earth. Before God gives the law, he tells them the good news of their salvation. The gospel comes, and then God gives the law. And that's important. Uh, and this dovetails on what we talked about last week. There is no relationship without demands. You ever thought about that? Do you have a relationship, brother, father, mother, uh, parent to child, that exists without some, some rules that define that relationship? Um, imagine a husband and wife that get married. Uh, newlyweds. They come back from their honeymoon. It's one of their first weekends at home. They wake up on a leisurely Saturday morning, get dressed, have a little breakfast. They're drinking coffee. The guy slips away, goes back to the bedroom, comes out in some athletic gear. And then he says, hey, sweetie, I'm getting ready to go uh, meet with the fellas. I think we're going to go play basketball. Can you imagine uh, the disposition of his wife at that point? I mean, she's going like, kick your hips back put a hand on her hips, crank her neck back and say, oh, you are, are you? Did I get it right, lady? And the guy is going to respond, not out loud, but in his mind, wait, I'm married. What the heck have I done? Right? You know, in that moment, he's going to sense the demands of the relationship. And it's not that the guy can't go out and and hang up with the fellows and play basketball, but there are no, there, there's no such thing as a relationship without demands. Uh, uh, what should happen is, of course, the, as I said last week, the, the guy is, is free to go hang out with his fellows, hang out with the fellows, play ball and all that, but if he values this relationship with his wife, then he will want to at least discuss it and, and be submitted to the relationship such that if his wife has some things for him to do that morning, honeydews, shopping, just hanging out in the house, just doing nothing but doing what newlyweds do, right? I mean, that, that he honors that before he goes off and, and does something else with his fellows. In the same way, we see that the law and the gospel work together in the book of Exodus. And what God is getting us to is, is this idea that uh, the law was for those who had already been redeemed. God wasn't trying to give a bunch of rules to people who weren't already in relationship with him. 
God had established a relationship earlier on in the life of Israel. He called them to himself and he rescued them and he was reminding them, hey, we've already established a relationship, but there are some rules that are gonna, you're going to have to abide by as we go forward. And this brings us to the first commandment proper, uh, verse 3. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, this, is, this is the fundamental commandment. All the others um, fall in, in line with this one. This one is first because uh, it's key to us understanding all the other commandments. I think you're going to understand that after we get through it today. I want to address three questions that we should, look, that we should think about when we, when we look at this text, this, this first commandment. And the first is, I mean, simply what does it mean? What does it mean when God says, you shall have no other gods uh, before me? Context is key. Uh, Israel had just been delivered from four centuries of slavery in Egypt. Um, Egypt was one of the most polytheistic cultures in the ancient Near East. Polytheistic just simply means they worship more than, more than one god. Um, it, literally, uh, the Egyptians had a god for any and everything. They worshiped gods of fields and rivers. They worshiped gods of light and darkness. They had a god for a storm and for the sun. They swore their allegiance to the gods and goddesses of love and war. They bowed down and worshiped idols that were in the form of beasts, but also in the form of human beings. But, but here's the thing that we, sh- we have to put in, in, uh, into consideration. The fact that Israel had spent 400 years in this environment meant that they were worshiping these same gods. And so God is saying in particular, all right, come out from the worship that you're already entering in. Um, so here in the first commandment, uh, God is he's first established the demands of the relationship. And, and this is what he's doing. He's he's setting a standard for Israel against the potential worship of any false gods. Gods that they had already been worshiping because they were in in a polytheistic culture of Egypt. Gods that they might have subjected themselves at, they might have been subjecting themselves to right then, and any that they might think to subject themselves to in the future. Why? Because in Canaan, there were, you know, basically lions, tigers, and bears. There were Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites and Moabites and a whole bunch of pagan nations that all had uh, polytheistic cultures. They all had their own gods, and he was warning them, uh, guard yourself against false worship. It's as if God is saying, I am to be your one and only God. God wanted to be a one God kind of, kind of a, a deity for them. There's another phrase here in this first commandment that's, that's important, uh, and it's the phrase before me. See that, that, those words there? You shall have no other gods before me. And that really means two things. Literally, it means before my face. And so God is saying, you shall have no other gods in front of me or in my presence. And so this was a prohibition uh, for Israel from, um, from bringing any kind of foreign idol to, in, to any place to which God would be worshipped. And if you think about it, the God of the Bible is everywhere, right? And so it's a prohibition for them, but also for us, for worshipping any kind of false God, any kind of false idol anywhere. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is, a, is a matter of precedence. Before me simply means over against. So God says, don't put up some fake idol over against me as if uh, uh, they're better than me, they're bigger than me, they're more powerful than me. He said, don't set up a false deity because it's insulting the face of God. That's basically what this is saying. Um, I think one of the questions that this commandment, this first commandment, forces us to ask, or at least surfaces, is, is this. I mean, do other gods even exist? Have you ever thought about that? Are there any such thing as, as other gods? Does the, does the way the commandment is worded give support to all the, the ways the pagan nations around Israel worshipped? And I would tell you very simply, God doesn't answer that question here in the Ten Commandments. Um, what the what the text is assuming is that Israel has lived in a, a, a foreign culture that worshipped other gods for four hundred years, and so the assumption is Israel has lived amongst pagans as if foreign gods exist. So that's God's start point. He's basically saying, "All right, you've 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 basically fell into it. You've believed that there are other gods other than me, 
And so I'm just going to start right here. Don't worship any other gods. But here's what the Bible says. And we learn this in, elsewhere in Scripture, and it unfolds in the narrative of the story that God is telling us about redemption. And it's simply this. The Bible insists there is only one God and that every other deity is a fraud. Every other deity. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 45, 21. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, we know that an idol is nothing and there is no, uh, no God but one. And Paul is saying this in the midst of, you know, the, the, the Corinthian church, they were kind of messed up, right? They were super spiritual and they believed any and everything. And they had asked Paul some questions. And so this letter of Paul is in response to the questions that they had asked. And one, one question in particular was, suppose, we, suppose we're at a banquet and someone is serving food that someone has sacrificed to an idol. Can't, can't, as Christians, can we eat it? And Paul, um, you know, Paul's response is, I mean, there are no other gods. Help yourself. Eat all you want. That's basically what he's saying. Here's a follow-on question. So if, if the Bible says it's true that there's no such thing as other gods, why would God even write in the first commandment that we're not supposed to worship other gods? If there are no other gods, why would he tell us not to worship other gods? Here's the answer. The answer lies in the fact that even false gods hold a kind of spiritual power over their worshipers. Uh, one of the best books that I've read uh, on the Ten Commandments is written by a, a scholar and a, an author by the name of Jay Duma, and he writes, People worship powerful forces within creation as if they were deities. They are not gods, but only so-called gods. Still, they're very real powers, able to enslave a person totally. And so here's what history has shown us, the history of people just, just like us. It's shown us that people can and will make an idol Almost uh, out of almost anything. And so in the Bible, we're introduced to numerous, numerous idols, numerous gods, Chemosh, Milcom, Asherah. Those are a few of the, the, the gods of the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. Uh, one of the most prominent was Baal, Baal. Um, he was the Canaanite god of, of storms, of thunder and rain and, uh, and of fertility. And so this was the thinking of the people. When the sun came out and it scorched everything such that the plants weren't growing, they thought that Baal was, uh, Baal was ill. He wasn't, he wasn't able enough to make, the, make it rain and make the ground fertile. But then when the autumn rains came and everything turned lush and green because the storms um, caused the, the ground to be fertile and everything, then they thought that Baal was waking up and he had regained his strength and he was coming to life again. Of course, uh, we look at that and it just sounds ludicrous, right? Uh, uh, I mean, Baal is, I mean, who is he? He's nothing. He doesn't really exist. But here's the thing that gives a, a false god or an idol its power. It's, it's human projection. It's us wanting something so bad that we would make something up in our minds such that it's real. And it's just plain old human superstition. And so here's, here's what's happening in, in this world of, of creating and worshiping false idols. When we remove ourselves from God, when we cut ourselves off from the creator of the world who made the rain and the plants and the animals and causes the ground to be fertile, uh, people like us will worship the creature instead of the creator. Are those, those sound like familiar words? That's the Bible, right? Look at what Paul says in, first, uh, in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the discerning of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, crea- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What, I mean, what's, the, what's the, like, the nugget of what Paul is saying? God has made himself known to everybody. It's just inside of us that we know that there's a God that exists. We just look up in the, in the, in the world and see how things are and knows there's an order to the world that we live in that can't, it just can't happen by happenstance or just by mistake or, you know, big bang and all that stuff. And he's saying, even with that, there's something in us that acknowledges there has to be a creator. We will take the birds and the trees and, and created things and make it our God. And the last verse says God punishes us for that. There's, there's things that happen because of that. And so this is really what idolatry is. Paul is painting for us a picture of what idolatry is. We, we exchange creator God for his creation, and we start worshiping it to include ourselves. We as creatures worship stuff like rain and sexuality and love and authority and intellect, and we do that instead of the God who gives us all of these blessings. And so this is what happens over time. History unfolds. Humanity continues to worship the creature over the creator, and and the truth is, many of these false gods, they just come and go. I mean, any of y'all know anybody that worships Baal? I mean, seriously, I'll raise your hand if you, if you know somebody that still worships Baal. Baal has gone the way of all false gods. He's sleeping. Like, he's been cut off. He, he's dead. Baal ain't nowhere around. Gods like Zeus and Odin and Thor and Hades. I mean, these dudes, they can only get gigs in cartoons, right? Or... Or TV dramas like uh, Once Upon a Time, you got Hades in there, if y'all watch that. Or, or movies like The Avengers. And, and so gods like these have become entertainment, but we're not foolish enough to, to worship them, are we? But here's the thing with idolatry. Idolatry doesn't need a name. And so here's what we do. We, we, we have false idols, but we don't name them Thor and, you know, is Megatron an idol? Uh, God? What is he? I don't know why Megatron popped into my mind, but you know, I like Megatron. I'm not worshiping that. Yeah. Our idols don't even need names before. This is, this is what the testimony of Scripture says. Idols can live separate from a name. Habakkuk 1.11 says, a man's strength, his might can be his God. Job 31 says, you can say to gold, you are my confidence. That's somebody worshiping money. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 6.24 when he, he, he says, no one can have two masters. You can't serve God and money. He calls, God, he calls money mammon, a god. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says to the church at Colossae, covetousness is explicitly called idolatry. In Philippians 3, 19, Paul says, we can even make our stomachs or our bellies our God. And this is like, this is the false idol of, of America right here. We've made our stomachs our God. Whatever is pleasing to us, we will worship it. And so people can make idols out of, out of almost everything. The erotic desire for power, reason, nature, tradition, our own consciousness. Everyday common things can get all of us in their grasp. Our hearts can become addicted to the common things that we find in our homes. Clothes, furniture, having a beautiful yard so all your neighbors are envious of you. And so here's the question. I mean, are there any such thing as as false gods? I mean, are there other gods? You know, the Bible says no, but the answer is, I mean, for us in this room, is yes. We got them, even if you haven't given it a name. Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Molech, Mammon, Zeus, Odin, Thor, they don't really exist, but here's where these gods do, do exist. Uh, they exist in our yearning for passionate love, for power, uh, and for prosperity. All these guys exist because, because we yearn for, for things sometimes that are beyond our control. And it makes us treat these things exactly the way God forbids us to. We make them gods. So the, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Here's the second question we need to ask from this text. What happens when we break it? What happens when we break God's commands, particularly this one. And for that, I want to tell you the story of a, 
uh, one of the, the greatest rulers that's ever ruled the earth, and his name is Solomon. We read about Solomon in, in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings. Um, the writer of the, uh, the book of 1 Kings spends 11 chapters unfolding the life of, of King Solomon. Of course, Solomon was the, the, the chosen son of King David. He's actually the son born from that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Uh, he comes to power, and early in his reign, we're told in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1, 1 Kings chapter 3, that, that Solomon loved the Lord. I mean, it's, the Bible doesn't paint an ugly picture of, of Solomon. Uh, he loved the Lord. He walked in the statues of his father, David. And of course, we know that David was the, the greatest king that's ever lived the earth. And th- that though he sinned, the Bible says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. And Solomon, his son, was walking in, in David's stead. And so early in Solomon's years of life and early in his reign, he's worshiping God at Gibeon, which was the place where they had a place of worship. The, the, the temple in Jerusalem had not been built yet. God appears to him. And God asked, uh, asked Solomon, Solomon, what would you have me give you? And Solomon could have asked for absolutely anything that he wanted. What does he ask for? He asked for wisdom. And so God gives Solomon what he asked for. He gives him wisdom. We know Solomon now is one of the wisest person that's ever lived on the earth. And we have a record of some of his wisdom in the, in the infallible authoritative scriptures uh, that we glean, uh, glean from him. Uh, but God also gave Solomon that all the things he didn't ask for. God gave him wealth and affluence and power and, and strength. There was no nation on the earth during the days of Solomon that was as great as his nation throughout all the earth. Um, Solomon's great task was to build a temple for God. David had um, amassed all these supplies, the choices of timber and of rock stones and um, of gems and of precious metals, and they were to be used in the building of God's temple. And that was the task that God told uh, Solomon that he was supposed to do, and he did that. In 1 Kings 10, we read that the queen of Sheba, one of the prominent uh, rulers on the earth at that time, visited Solomon and reveled both in Solomon's wisdom and just the organization and the grandeur of his kingdom. I mean, Solomon had it going on. Here's the thing. If only Solomon could have kept the first commandment, then he would go down as one of the greatest kings ruling one of the greatest nations on the face of the earth. But today we read about Solomon, not so much for his wisdom, but for the mistakes that he made because he failed to follow the first commandment. He ended up worshiping all the things that made him great. Let me give you some examples. Solomon didn't ask for gold, but he started serving the gold of his wealth. A couple examples of this. In 1 Kings 6, we learned that Solomon actually embarked on the process of building a temple. It took him seven years to build this grand edifice for the Lord. In the very next chapter, however, we learned that Solomon decided after he had built a nice, cool pad for God, he was going to build a bigger, nicer, cooler pad for himself. It took seven years to build the temple for, for God to dwell in, in its presence, and it's for his presence to dwell in. It took 13 years for Solomon to build his temple. I mean, can you see the difference? And the scripture doesn't elaborate on that. It doesn't tell us that Solomon was sinning by taking 13 years to build a palace for himself. But the assumption is, is that Solomon bought into how good he was and how wealthy he was, and he took advantage of that wealth. Solomon didn't ask for power. Yet in time, he began to worship the God of his military strength. The, the, the law in Deuteronomy 17 forbid Israel from raising up Calvary. In 1 Kings 10, this is exactly, I mean, Solomon did exactly what God told him not to do. He gathered together horses from all the nations around him, and he built chariots, and he built one of the biggest uh, cavalries uh, of any nation in the ancient Near East. He did the very thing God said not to do. Perhaps Solomon's biggest distraction were the women in his life. Sorry, ladies. The Deuteronomic law said that Solomon, uh, the, the king, was not to take many wives or his heart would be led 
astray. We read that in Deuteronomy 17. And, and sadly, Solomon failed to heed God's warning. In 1 Kings 11, we learn that Solomon had 700 wives, mostly who were born of royal birth, and 300 concubines. Uh, and it's these wives that led him astray. Solomon had uh, formed strategic alliances with the nations that were around him so that he would prop himself up as, as, as a ruler. And one of the things that solidified his rulership were to take wives from you know, some of those, those surrounding regions and nations so that they wouldn't attack him. And of course, these, these wives came from all the nations to which God said, don't take wives from those places because they'll, wor- they'll worship their own gods and they'll lead you into worshiping those same gods. And the thing that God said to Solomon to do actually happened. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Solomon had wives from the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Sidonians and the Hittites. They were from all the nations of which the Lord said, don't do it. And that's exactly what Solomon did. In the end, God punished Solomon by tearing his kingdom apart. But that wasn't a real tragedy. It wasn't a real tragedy that Solomon, um, in fact, Solomon didn't even see it. After he died, his son Rehoboam took over and God took the kingdom and divided it from his his son Rehoboam. The real tragedy for Solomon was this, not the punishment itself of taking the kingdom, but the sin, the sin of breaking the first commandment. Solomon discovered that to his own dismay, um, life is empty when you follow other gods. And of course, Solomon's a wise person. He lived to write about it. So the whole book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is, is Solomon's grand experiment. Solomon set out to uh, in wisdom, explore everything that was anything in the world. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to withhold any pleasure for myself. I'm going to try it out. If it's, if it's something to be had and some, a pleasure to be had, I'm going to try it out. And Ecclesiastes 2.10, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. You know what the result was? I mean, do you think he got ahead? Do you think he, he satisfied himself? Did he get what he wanted? Would you think that after he did all those things, he said it was worth it. Big flat, no. No, his pursuit of power, pleasure, and prosperity led him into nothing but emptiness and despair. Look at, uh, look at what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, the latter half of that. He says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So I hated my life because the work that I, the, that's done under the sun was grievous to me. And I would tell you, Solomon is just one example in Scripture of what happens to all of us that break the first commandment. And so, I mean, the story of Solomon, it's meant to be a warning to us, a warning uh, to everyone who, who makes a decision to follow God, but that you're increasingly allowing yourself to come under the influence of, of things that will that we could classify as other gods, things that are capturing your, your affections. Uh, many people assume that idolatry is a thing of the past. I mean, how many of us are going to take an idol, erect it, and bow down to it? That's probably not what we're going to do in the land that we live in today. That sounds so primitive, but the truth is that the spirit of who Solomon is and what he did lives well I mean, in our lives today. The things that Solomon did, um, we're not strangers to them. There is no more Malek and Baal and Asherah and Ashtaroth, but we worship other deities, which is called by different names. And so the last question I want us to ask together is, how do, how do we not do what Solomon did? How do we identify our own private idolatries and what can we do about it when we, when we found those? Uh, there are two tests I want to encourage you to, to to do with yourself. And the first test is, uh, these are both just um, ways that you can see where you're tempted to worship other gods, worship things that you can call gods. And the first test is the love test. Just so imp- simply ask yourself, I mean, what do I love? Wh- what do you love? We are called to love God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our, of our souls. Uh, really, later on in this series, uh, I'll, I'll point to that. The, the Old Testament and Deuteronomy 6, 4 
basically boils down all of God's laws into, into two commands. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and Jesus echoes that same, those same commands in the New Testament. And so above all, the Bible tells us we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, minds, and souls. But here's the prohibition. If instead we give our love to someone or something else, then, then that's when we're serving another God. And so let's ask ourselves this morning, I mean, what do you love? Or to ask it a different way, what do you desire? What grabs your affection? Where does your mind roam when you're free to think about anything? Where do you spend your money? What do you get excited about? A false God is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a bad thing that we make the best thing and we put it above God. We, we serve that. We love that. We focus on that to the exclusion of the God who made the thing and gave it to us to be enjoyed. And here's some false gods in your life that you might love. It could be a sport or a recreation. It could be a hobby, a personal interest. It could be an appetite for finer things in life that you can't afford right now, but you want it desperately. It could be a career ambition. It could be personal health and fitness. It could be the way you look, body image, the way your face looks, how you fix your hair. It could even be a ministry in the church, just wanting that badly such that you would worship it. And, and here's the thing. I just call it a, a list of things. None of them are bad things. Those are things that God has given us on this earth to enjoy. But when we elevate those to a place that they have, that we enjoy it more than we enjoy God himself, then we have made that to be a false God. And that thing has captured our affection. The second test is the trust test. So we got the love test. What do you love? But you also got a trust test. What, what are you trusting? And, and here's, the, here's the thing about the trust test. This is what you got to ask yourself. Where do I turn when, when, uh, when life gets hard, when trouble comes, when life squeezes me, backs me into a corner and I can't get out? What do I do? That tells you what you're trusting in. A lot of times when we're, when we're in trouble, when life is squeezing us, the, the first thing that you run to when you're lonely or discouraged um, that's, that's what you're trusting. And, and I would call those addictions. You know, addictions like sometimes it's just smoking, drugs, alcohol, sex. Um, we might go shopping. I'm not saying that those of you that shop are, are addicted, but sometimes we are. We're obsessed. With, I mean, whatever we would, we would lean on to pull us through when life gets hard, those are sometimes things that we're trusting. But you know what? Just like I said with the idea of love, that God puts good things in our grasp that if we trust in them more than we trust in the provision of God for those things, then we make them out to be a God. And we've, we've exchanged putting our trust and confidence in the God that, that is our provision with that thing that, that just soothes us when we, when we need an automatic uh, soothing. And sometimes those things are our jobs. Sometimes we trust our insurance policies. Sometimes we trust our investments or our pension plans for the security they give us. I don't know if anyone went here and say that, but sometimes we put our faith in the government that, you know, it can control the interest rates. And so it's going to be able to, to adjust the economy on my behalf. And we look forward to that. Sometimes we trust the families that we come in. I come from a good family and, you know, the, the, the family name I got is going to protect me and, and guarantee me a, a, uh, a certain position uh, in, in the social life of, of, the, of the world, of the community. Sometimes we trust in science and medicine more than we trust in the, the God who, who made those things. Of course, God can use all these things to care for us and provide for us, but we're not to place our ultimate confidence in those, but instead we're supposed to put those in God. And, and here's, the, here's the greatest false God that all of us have. It's the false God of ourself. Everything else in our life are lesser gods, uh, but here's what we oftentimes do. We create a God or a goddess out of ourself, and we become the supreme deity. And this is what I mean by that. A lot of times we are, we're, we're prone to... Um, to want to serve God, we come to church, we read our Bible, we pray, we go to community group, but we spend a lot of time thinking about us, meeting my needs, my plans, my problems, my own desires, and when we fixate on that, what happens? That stuff becomes a God. 
and you're slave to it. And so the first thing you think about is, I mean, what do I want? So here's the question, last question. What do we do? Y'all know me as a pastor so far, right? I, I shy away from telling you what to do. Um, I, and I shy away from telling you what to do because as human beings, we just want somebody to give me three, give me three steps. Just tell me what to do. And that's why I don't tell you what to do. I tell you what the Bible says. I give you some implications. Um, but today, I want to give you some practical stuff. I want to, I want to help you out. This is, a, this is an important area. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I, I do want to help you out a little bit and, and make it practical. Uh, hear, hear this. The, the paradox of Scripture is that to get to freedom, you have to know how much bondage you're in. Did you hear that? To get to a place of freedom in our lives, we have to know how much bondage we're in. Said differently, the law of God won't be a light to you until you realize how much darkness you're in without it. Someone told a story of if we would put ourselves in like Redskins Stadium, FedEx Stadium, turn all the lights out at midnight. If someone lit just the smallest light, pin light, all of us would train our eyes on that light because light, I mean, that light would be that great. You don't realize how much darkness you, you have in your life until the light, until you're exposed to the light. And that light dismisses that, that darkness. And so in the same vein, the only remedy for the worship of false gods is to replace it with another. Notice I didn't say just stop worshiping false gods. Why, why didn't I say that? Because we can't. God has created us to be worshipers. And he's meant for us to orient our worship on him. We are going to worship. And if we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship something else. That really is the, what the first commandment means. We are going to find something to worship. And God is mandating that we should worship him and leave the other stuff alone. And so the remedy for the worship of false gods is to replace it with another. And this gets at our passions. That, the, the, what you're passionate about is is, is what you're going to uh, rally your life around. A passionate relationship with God is the only cure for idols. And the God of the Bible is Jesus. That's what the Bible is. This is what this, is what this commandment is pointing us to. Don't worship false gods. Worship the God, the, the God who created the earth, the God who is the one that can give you all the blessings that you seek in this land, in, in, the, in the, the, the life that you live. Uh, I like this analogy. You know what? No one, in this regard into passions, no one eats a bologna sandwich if you know you got a filet mignon sitting on the table right next to it, right? I mean, I like bologna. I haven't eaten a bologna sandwich in, in at least 30 years, but you, you slap some, you slap some, because my wife won't let me eat bologna. Uh, you slap some, uh, some good mustard and mayo on that thing and like, hmm, I might have me a bologna sandwich later today, probably. Get, let my kids eat bologna for the first time. But bologna loses its appeal if I've got a nice, juicy, fat steak on the table right beside it, doesn't it? Passion, I mean, passion always wins. And so if you want to overcome sin and idolatry, you have to, I mean, you have to somehow gain a better, greater passion. The Bible exhorts us that we're supposed to orient our passion into our worship of Jesus. Why? Because he, Jesus claims exclusive rights to our worship. He's not just one prophet among many. He is, he is the prophet. He is not just one way to get to God among many. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, John 14. He's the only incarnate son of God. He alone kept the whole law for you, for all of God's people, offered a perfect sacrifice for our sins, was raised from the dead to open a way to eternal life. So he alone deserves our praise. Amen. Why should you have a passion for Jesus? Because, I mean, he's, he's earned it. He deserves it. He's the one that created you. Jesus calls us to turn away from everything else we are tempted to worship and to give glory to him alone. This other one's going to surprise you, but, but here's another remedy for putting away false gods. It's the church. It, it's your church. Um, you all need each other. <laughs> You need the community of the local church. You can't do it by yourself. And here's what the world does with community. You ever notice that everybody outside of the church rallies around 
uh, what, an affinity. I like to call it an idol. We all center around whatever our own idol, idol is. And so if, you, uh, if you're in the fantasy football, you got like five, five fantasy leagues going on, then all your friends are like that too, right? And if you're one of those weird people that get into independent films, then that's all you think about, that's all you talk about, and all your, f- I didn't mean to say that if you're into independent films. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. I just don't understand it. All right? But all your friends, that's all they do. And if you're a computer, a computer geek that hangs around uh, each other, and that's, I mean, that's, all, I mean, that's all you do. And we can say the same thing with video games and Star Trek and Star Wars and sports. I'm not, I'm not picking on those things. It's just we're people of affinity, and we find other people who are like us, and we rally around our idols. Everybody just organizes around their idol because that's what they trust. And this is why the church is so important. I mean, just look around you. Look. It's for real. Like, look around you. Look at all these people in here. They're not like you. And that, what, that's what makes the church so special, is that the church presents you with this, this neat um, dilemma of, of being in community and being around people who aren't like you. But here's the, cool, here's the interesting thing. They got idols, too. And when you come into the community of the church, the way it's supposed to happen is your idol is going to rub up against my idol. And I'm going to see things about you. I mean, you're worshiping your kids. Or you worship your job. All you care is about money. All you care is about how you look. We'll see those things in other people. But when, we're, when, we, when God shows us those things in other people, he's going to turn that mirror around and, and, and we're going to have this epiphany. And we're going to see that, oh, my God, I got idols, too. That's, that's, what, that's how the church is supposed to happen. And you'll figure out that you're worshiping your idol just as much as the other person is worshiping whatever their idol is. And that's the community of God. I mean, God, God has called us to this. Here's the thing. And we'll see this over the next few weeks in this series. God is absolutely committed to removing everything in your life that keeps you from full love and passion for him. God wants you to surrender him. And here's why. When you're fully surrendered to God, not trusting in other things to give you meaning and identity, that's when you tap into the joy that God has for you. Your worship of God will be full and it will be meaningful. You'll obey the, the, the commandments, not because you have to, but because you get to. And that's what God wants you to get to. He wants you to get to the place where I'm obeying these Ten Commandments because I get to. It's out of my love for God that I do he simply do what he says for me. I realize I'm in relationship with a covenant God, the God that made the earth, the God that made me and loves me enough to die for me. And there are some demands as I enter this relationship. Here's the neatest thing that, that I, I am discovering about God. And this is the greatest thing that I could, I could wish on any of you, that, that God would mess with our idols. Think about that. He is doing it, but I'm actually praying that he would do that in you. And I pray that he would do it gently at first so that he doesn't shake you too much. But this is what God is doing. He's like creeping up on you. He's not even creeping up. He's telling you. I mean, I'm telling you, he's doing it. He's creeping up on you. He's shaking you a little bit. And he's, he's showing you all those areas in your life that you're trusting in things that, that aren't worthy of your trust. It's like two, two lumberjacks were tasked to go out into this, this field, cut some trees down so they could build a building. And uh, they get to the first tree they're going to cut down. Two birds hanging up in it, doing their thing, making a nest. They took the, bu- the butt end of the axe. And they just beat that tree to death because they're trying to get these, these birds to move before the tree falls down. Um, finally, the birds fly away. They knock the tree down. They come the next day. They're on their second or third or fourth tree. Same thing. Birds are flying up, trying to make a nest. They take the butt end of the axe. They chop it down, chop it down, chop it down. Um, birds fly away. Next day, same thing. Next day, same thing. Come to the end of one of the last trees. And finally, the birds have caught the message. They go and make their nest in a rock. I mean, can you get the analogy? God is knocking against the, all the, the, the trees of your life, trying to get you to stray from um, all those things that are not worthy of your trust, that are not worthy of your love, that are destined to fall down. That's what a false god is. That's what idolatry is. There are things that you're spending your 
your life's energy on, but they, they don't last. They aren't meant to. Here's a question for you. Last question. Are you cooperating with what God is doing? To the degree that you're cooperating with God, that's the degree that you're going to be either okay in life or perhaps be miserable. Here's the cool thing. This is a process. It can be a painful process, but, but it's a process. The most painful sin in our lives is the one that we've already repented of. God is, when God is tearing down idols in our life, here's the cool thing that God doesn't do. He doesn't pile up a whole bunch of things on you at the same time. He just, he just works in one area at a time. Thank God that he does that. And so God might be cutting down a branch or a part of a branch that's representing an idol in your life. He's not going to, it's not like God's going to come at you like you might come at your five-year-old. And it's like, all right, clean up your room. Here's some chemicals. Pick that up. Throw that away. Uh, oh, by the way, go make your own lunch. Do your laundry. I heard you talk back to your mom. Don't do that anymore. I mean, what's a, what's a five-year-old going to do with all those, those instructions coming up at the same time? He ain't going to do nothing but sit down on the ground and start playing with his toys, right? <laughs> Thank God God doesn't give us commands like that. He, he allows us to, to do, really, I think the way he works in my life is he, he brings up one thing at a time. So, all right, Jeff, work on this. All right, I see that you can't handle them. I'm going to give you half of a thing. Work on the half of a thing, and he's going to keep pressing me, uh, you know, with the wherewithal to do it. I think God is saying to us today one thing. What's the one thing that God perhaps is making you uncomfortable in, in your life, but it's an area that you realize that you're trusting uh, in that thing and not in God himself? I would say that thing is, is probably the gateway to freedom. It's an opportunity for you to walk in the light that you're given. And so as I close, uh, I mean, that's, let's interact with God in that way. Let's not, let's not come to church, check a block, and, uh, and not deal with God in this area of, of false gods and idolatry. All of us in this room, the person speaking included, has things in his life, in your life, for which we have, we've elevated them to the exclusion of the God that created us. And God is saying, don't worship any God but me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that it would um, encourage us challenge us and that we would be moved to respond. Holy Spirit, uh, we acknowledge you as God, as God. I pray that as, uh, as our folks contemplate uh, the words of Scripture, as we contemplate Exodus 3, where you've uh, commanded us not to have any gods before you, uh, that we, that, that Holy Spirit, you would show us. Uh, don't show us a whole bunch. Just show, give us what we can bear, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians. Show us those areas of our life, that one area where we have um, believed in a false God. We have trusted it. We've loved it. We're serving it. And I pray that, uh, that you would show us that it's coming down. It's destined to come down. And uh, show us how much you uh, are pursuing us that we, would, uh, that we would trade gods, that we would change out that idol for Jesus. I pray that in his name. Amen. Amen.